podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. Hey, 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 welcome back and thank you from the bottom of my storytelling heart for listening. I'm not even going to pretend that I'm not jumping out of my skin with excitement over today's show. Sometimes there are just people you meet in life that you just want to be around, just knowing that by being like closer to them, some sort of like whatever makes them awesome will like fall off and stick to you sort of like awesome dandruff, right? And maybe, just maybe you'll get a speck of that awesomeness and they'll, it'll, it'll carry you to some greater achievement. Jeff Hoffman is exactly that kind of awesome person. His name isn't as recognizable as Bezos, Musk, or William Shatner, although he knows them all, but his impact on how we travel and the things we do in life are just as big as anything those well-known names have done. With global insights and experience launching and growing a range of companies, including Priceline.com, Jeff has built a career by innovating through entrepreneurship. And he seeks out the kinds of solutions that create industry shifts, from the way we book airline tickets to how we create entrepreneurship in emerging economies on seven continents. As you'll hear, Jeff is also a very engaging storyteller and keynote speaker who has been invited to more than 50 countries to speak on innovation, entrepreneurship, and business leadership. And by applying his vast experience to problems that challenge all entrepreneurs and those trying to make a difference in the world, he always leaves his audience, and you'll hear this today, with a profoundly new way to think. Jeff is a featured business expert seen on Fox News, Fox Business, CNN, CNN International, Bloomberg News, CNBC, ABC, and NPR, and in publications including Forbes, Inc., Time, Fast Company, The Wall Street Journal, and more. Uh, have you ever heard of any of those? <laughs> and among his myriad of talents, Jeff is also a published author, a Hollywood film producer, and a producer of Grammy-winning jazz album in 2015. He serves on the boards of companies in the U.S., Europe, South America, Africa, and Asia, and supporting entrepreneurs and small businesses in more than 150 countries. He also serves on the boards of Global Entrepreneurship Week and the Unreasonable Group. And Jeff supports the White House, the U.S. State Department, the United Nations, and foreign governments on economic growth initiatives and entrepreneurship. I first met Jeff at an entrepreneur program called the Entrepreneur's Master Program in an off-site location at MIT. And when I heard Jeff speak, I was completely moved and my life had it was changed. He, he really influenced the way I thought and, and how I saw the world. And I'm so excited to share Jeff Hoffman's story with you today. So as a person who remembers pre-internet, there are things in today's life that just blow my mind. Uh, like the point of sale systems driven by an iPad at the coffee shop, or that I can beam any song from a device the size of a deck of cards. And yesterday, as I was booking some travel, the ability to price shop and book my travel in a couple of clicks. I mean, all these innovations seem sort of standard practice now, but if you remember before we had these and what life was like, these are truly mind-blowing ideas. 
And we had to work with a travel agent knowing we probably weren't getting the best price or getting to control our flight selection. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty crazy maniacal about booking my own travel and, and, and having it be just right. Uh, and the ability to price shop and easily book airfare without having to deal with a travel agent or talk to the airline is what Priceline.com, the company you're probably most well known for founding. And we're going to get in. You've had a, you've had a big career and, and, and a lot of uh, really great accomplishments. We'll get into that in a little bit. But Priceline.com is, is really all about, um, you know, democratizing travel. And uh, we'd love to hear uh, the, the story behind that and how that all got started. Oh, sorry. I, you were still going. I didn't realize that was the question. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the story behind Priceline.com, Jeff? <laughs> so Priceline was actually the brainchild of a guy named Jay Walker. Um, Jay is an intellectual property guy uh, and that I had been working with. He created the intellectual property for a reverse auction, which was a concept instead of you going out and, you know, meeting somebody's price, the idea was, you deciding how much money you had to spend and having suppliers bid on you. I'll take that person. I'll, t- I'll put you on my plane or I'll put you up in my hotel. So that was the original idea uh, at, at to reverse, to create buyer-driven commerce and harvest consumer demand. And Jay then put together a team of people. Uh, and during that time, it was kind of fun because we actually launched as a group a number of companies. Um, uh, the travel one is the one everyone knows because that one worked. Uh, and that one really, really grew. But we launched in total about five companies back then uh, with varying levels of success. But uh, again, the travel effort of Priceline.com, it wasn't a travel company. It was a buying company, but the travel product just took off and is one of the world's largest travel buying services today. Yeah, and was that the one that you thought was going to take off? Well, we knew that it would get going fast. And here's why. You know, it's funny because back in the, Mark, in the early internet days, uh, there weren't internet companies, so we all knew each other. Like, I remember a conversation I had with these two guys, Pierre and Jeff. Uh, and I kind of marked up the plan that Pierre sent me, which turns out to be eBay. <laughs> I was wrong on that. Um, and then the other Jeff was Bezos. And I remember talking to Bezos one day very early on. And Jeff talking about the fact that uh, uh, what was difficult in his concept was warehouses and forklifts. Books had to be physically moved all over the place and put in warehouses and picked up by forklifts and shipped to people. And we were talking about consumer electronics at one point, but what we said was we should start with the fastest thing we could get up and running, which would be soft goods. Um, And uh, soft goods like travel, um, where you don't have a warehouse, you don't have a forklift, you don't ship anything. So I think everybody believed the travel company would be up and running first since it didn't require fulfillment per se. I just think no one ever imagined quite how big it would become. Yeah. And, and back in the day there, I mean, what, what was that like? Take us back a little bit. I mean, were you able, were you raising money? Were you guys just in a, in a garage? Was it somewhere in between? No, it was, it was a, but it was a small office that Jay had in Connecticut. So it was a startup like everybody else, very modest. I'm nothing fancy, had not raised money at the beginning. Um, Jay had found some money from some friends, basically, when he put the team together. Um, But the big challenge was on the consumer side. If you think about the Priceline proposition, it was uh, name your own price, but it was this. You, this is what a consumer would say. Let me get this right. You don't know what time you're leaving. You don't know what airline you're flying, but you have to pay in advance (laughs) because it started with airlines before hotels. So the big test was, could you get people to trust you and could you change consumer behavior in a significant way on an online platform where the consumers had never even met you. That was the challenge, but that was also the fun part. 
figuring out how to affect consumer behavior online. People were used to buying stuff in stores where I could look at you and see who I'm buying from and find you again if I had a problem. So internet companies and the internet concept were a big challenge. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, even just getting people to put a credit card in on the internet was was always a challenge. And there was this huge trust factor of like, what's happening? You're going you're gonna to ask me to put my details, my personal information on the internet. And there was just this real um, process of having to educate and, and earn trust uh, over the internet, which doesn't exist today. I mean, t- we, we, we don't think anything of it. We just hit a few clicks on our phone, all our credit cards are in there, all our personal information. And we just don't think of it. But to see, you know, to understand that you had to overcome that obstacle was a big part of the business model, I have to imagine. Oh yeah, completely different, but it was fun because what you do in the beauty of the internet is A-B testing, right? You try, you literally, customer one goes to your website and it looks a certain way. And then customer two, the router sends them to a different page uh, and they see something different. And customer three, you can send to a different page and you can watch which of those three worked better and change it. So you could change the face of your store literally in real time and see how customers reacted. So it was a really fun time to learn what is it going to take to get people to buy stuff online and put in their personal information. Yeah. And was Priceline your first business or did you have some businesses before that? For me, that was the fifth startup I was part of. Were any of the other the other four or uh, did they do anything or was that just more of yeah, a learning the, experience? No, the first one was, uh, I was very fortunate. And when I was... Um, um, 20-something years old, I had an engineering job that I quit. I only worked in corporate America a couple of years. I was standing in an airport waiting to check in for a flight. And when you're unemployed and broke, an airline ticket's an expensive investment. And the line to check in was forever. And I missed the flight. Um, and I was not particularly happy about that because that cost me a lot. The line was an hour long. And all that happened at the end of an hour, right, was a uh, woman, you know, checked my ID and then printed a boarding pass. And I remember saying to her, this is ridiculous. Why am I standing in line for an hour for you to use a printer? And the woman's like, next. She's kind of yelling at me. <laughs> need to move. And I'm like, but the process is ridiculous. We're all standing in line. And you're just using print. And I kept saying, why don't you let us print it? And she continued, um, we can't, uh, only an airline can print a boarding pass. And you have to have one to get through uh, security and all that stuff. Anyway, I quit. I mean, I left. I quit my job. I was unemployed. And I started, that was one of my first startups, really pretty much that Friday. Um, and we, when you check into an airport now, those kiosks that you check yourself into, that was our first product. And so we created those, we filed patents on those, and we started selling them to airlines all over the world. So that company, our travel technology company, was very successful. Oh, that's awesome. So you hear that, everybody. Every time now you check in at a kiosk, you have Jeff Hoffman to thank. And uh, we do thank you because I also don't like waiting in line only to get uh, a few clicks and a, and a mean look from the people checking you in. So that's, that's <laughs> awesome. You so, know, you know it's funny, sometimes people today, people will send me a, uh, a uh, thank you. They'll just a picture of themselves checking in at a kiosk with just the word thanks and a smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you love those. So, you know, I've heard you speak before and and this is, you know, I've heard you say something to the effect, I, I try to, to get it right, but if I paraphrase, par- paraphrase, paraphrase that entre- entrepreneurship is the tool, not the purpose. And it really seems to me, even in that example, that, that, that entrepreneurship was the tool to solve a big problem uh, that, that people have. And, and I know that you've always uh, in your career been really focused on solving those big problems uh, to, to help many people. I mean, was that always the way? I mean, you know, you, you 
where did you want to be when you grew, grew up? Did, was it, oh, did you always have this vision of entrepreneurship and, and problem solving? No, not at all. Problem solving, yes. But I have to tell you, that is strictly uh, because of my DNA flaw, of my impatience. I am just, you know, I, every year I say I'll work on my patience, and I don't. Um, <clears throat> but that was also uh, the enabler for me. Um, because I've always been so impatient, every time I've ever been, you know, here's what entrepreneurs do that everybody else doesn't. When, you're, when you see a problem in the world, you're in a line trying to do something. It takes forever. Everybody's complaining. But entrepreneurs are the ones that stand there and say, come on, there has to be a better way. This is ridiculous. And everyone else just complains and goes back to what they were doing when they're done. But entrepreneurs are the ones that say, there's no way this should take three hours. It shouldn't take this long to get a boarding pass. There has to be a better way to get a boarding pass. So I am, because I'm impatient, I'm always saying there must be some better way to do this. So pro solving problems and making things more efficient is a DNA thing for me. Inefficiency drives me nuts. But I will say the tool set of entrepreneurship became relevant to me, not because I ever wanted to be an entrepreneur, but because I had very specific goals that I didn't have a way to solve. Um, and uh, let me be a little clear about that. I always wanted to travel. And I always wanted to see the world. And I grew up in a small, you know, in the desert in Arizona, uh, in a place that no one really ever left. And there was, there was no obvious way I was ever going to go see the world um, from where I was. So uh, I realized this. That if you could solve, and let me just cut to the punchline, here's the formula, that you can get anywhere that you want to be as long as you become valuable to the people you want to be around, which means you have to solve a problem that they need to have solved. So here was my thought. If I wanted to see the world, then I need to become valuable to people in travel, people that traveled the world. And the only way I could do that would be by solving a problem for them. So when I did those kiosks at the beginning, my idea was, what if every airline in the world had to call me and say, Jeff, we need you to come to our country and do something. Then I'd get to see the world. So entrepreneurship was a tool set, right? We were flying all over the world, installing our travel technology. I was seeing the planet, which is my goal, and I was getting paid for it. So entrepreneurship is a set of tools you use to solve a problem. But the important thing is, go solve a problem for people you want to be around. By the way, Mark, that's how I started my music company as a software engineer. People are like, what are you doing in music? I said, well, if I can find some way to be valuable to people in the industry, then there's a chance I'll get the call to be part of the industry. So that's what entrepreneurship is about. Is about it's a mindset and it's a tool set to take you anywhere you want to go. That's great, and I do want to come back to the to the music career, but you know, you just illustrated that you or described that you grew up in this small town in Arizona, out in the desert. I mean, how did you even think? Because, you know, let's go back. This is before like entrepreneurship was cool, right? Now we have all this, like entrepreneurs are kind of celebrities. They're, they're becoming well-known. It's kind of cool to be an entrepreneur. And, and I have to imagine that back, you know, when you got started, it, it wasn't that cool. It was just, it was what you were doing. You were starting companies, but it wasn't, you know, most people saw entrepreneurs and thought, you know, hey, you're either crazy or you can't hold a job or you got these crazy ideas. And so going back to Arizona, like, how did you even have the gumption to think, you know, I can do this. I can, I can create a life where uh, I'm solving problems that allow me to travel the world. I'm, I'm creating, I'm able to solve problems that uh, allow me to get into the music industry. I mean, how, did you have anyone in your life or any role models or anyone that inspired you to do that? So you're right. Not only was it not cool, it was actually negative. When I would tell people I'm an entrepreneur, he would say, oh, you're a hustler. <laughs> and I would say, well, no, you make that sound bad. I hustle, but I'm not doing anything illegal. 
And then they'd say, oh, no, I get it. You just got fired. And I would say, no, I quit. And they'd say, and you couldn't get another job. It was all negative. An entrepreneur was a hustler who couldn't get a job. And I was like, no, 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 I am doing this on purpose. It's funny, Mark, that it wasn't that many years ago that I got called by a school and they said, well, you come speak at career day. And I said, well, I'm sure you have the wrong phone number. They're like, no, no, we called you. I said, career day is doctors and lawyers. And it was funny what they said. They said, we finally decided that maybe you became an entrepreneur on purpose and that's your career. So that kind of, uh, kind of made me laugh. But for me, it wasn't really, it wasn't that I had a person or anything. It was that I made the connection between goals and dreams and the work that I could do. And I'll tell you how. I wanted to get involved in a very specific program of study in a very specific college for which I had neither the money nor the qualifications for. So I'm in a giant public school in Arizona. Um, and I wanted to go to Yale because Yale was the, one of the first schools studying artificial intelligence back in the day, and which is finally just coming around now. <laughs> and I wanted to go study this AI thing at Yale. So Yale was a school I had to go to. So I worked extremely hard to even be able to apply to schools like Harvard and Yale and then to qualify to get in. Um, after all that hard work, when I got there, I didn't have enough money, even with all the aid, and they told me I had to go home. And I said, look, this is my dream. I want to study AI at Yale. And they said, well, you don't have enough money. You can't do it. So since I couldn't go to class the first week because I was basically getting kicked out for not having enough money, I uh, started my first company that week. What I said was, you know, I have a big dream. I want to graduate from Yale. So I have a big problem. I got to come up with enough money to graduate. Um, so I've got to do something in the world that will solve that problem. So I started a software company, you know, freshman year uh, in order to fund my education. And when I was done, you know, interestingly, because one of the finance guys at Yale told me at graduation, he said, you know, we had kind of a betting pool betting against you. How many months will it take before this kid disappears? Because there's no way he's going to be able to raise this, make this money on his own. So uh, my, my big dream was to get that diploma in four years. And when I did, I, what happened was this wasn't about money. But I stood back and I said, hey, I said, big goal, big dream, hard work, solve problems for somebody. Because what I was doing was, was solving business problems in software for businesses in the community. And they were paying me well, which is how I paid my tuition. So I had a, a, an understanding of the relationship between big dreams, big goals, and hard work. Um, and so when I, the travel thing was just my next big goal. I want to see the world. And it occurred to me after the Yale experience, I might, I was a little more confident. I said, I might be able to solve this problem completely on my own by repeating the process I just went through. Wow. And so that like framework of like, you know, state a big dream, find the problem to solve, achieve the dream is, is, you know, simple in, in, in principle, a little harder sometimes, you know, it takes grit and uh, uh, determination to achieve it, but it's super, super powerful. Like where else has that manifested itself and, and paid off for you and other uh, ventures? Well, really all of them, um, because everything I've done was very goal oriented. I tend to set short term, three, four, five year targets of what I want to do next in my life. Uh, and then I try to come up with the same kind of plan. It's on me, right? In fact, I have this little three lines I wrote down when I was way younger. I wrote down, dream big, work hard, create value. And so it's the same formula. Start with a big dream of something you want to do next, right? You have to be willing to work as hard as your dream is big, but you got to go out in the world and create value for somebody or you're not going to get anywhere anyway. 
So every time I've had a big idea, something I wanted to do in my life, it's been the exact same formula. I got to go out and create uh, value for somebody. Yeah. And so you, you exit Priceline. And um, I think if I remember the story correctly, you can correct me. You had a big dream. And uh, do you want to share what, what that was? Uh, yeah, I have a huge <clears throat> passion for music. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It's the universal language. Um, it's the power to bring people together, you know, for a night in a concert to forget all your troubles and forget race and ethnicity and religion. And everybody's just in the moment. I've always been a big fan of that. And I wanted to, uh, I was literally in a concert one night and the promoter came out and he went on stage and he said, you know, are you people ready to rock? And 30,000 screaming people. And I remember asking my friends, who's that guy? And they said, well, he's the producer. It's his concert. Um, and I said, man, I want to do that. He's the guy that brought us this night, this gift of music. So I wanted to be around music, but I employed again the, and I love being around creative people, but I'm not a musician and I'm not an artist and a singer, a dancer, a writer, or any of those things. So I started the same thing. What is it I could do to get around those people? How could I be involved? And the formula is the same. You've got to solve some problem that those people have that, that any of them would want you around. And so I did, and this is important because this is a formula that I use for everything later, and I especially teach it to youth. I, the formula is this. First, study the industry that you really want to be around. Right? So I studied everything, Mark. I read everything I could about the concert industry and the touring industry. And then I found out that every industry has, you know, periodicals. There's a magazine called Polestar, which I've never heard of, and it's the magazine of the concert industry. So for a whopping $12.95, I subscribed, and I started getting the concert magazine. And in it, I read every story, but you know what else? I wrote down the names of the authors, the people that were the concert producers, and I started emailing them out of the blue. And nine out of 10 people won't even respond, but the 10th one, responds and now you have you're buying lunch for someone who produces one and you're taking a million notes so by the time you're done study an industry when i'm done i made this giant list of what does it take to produce a concert and so on my list you write this all on the board after you study the industry you want to be in if somebody listening to this podcast wants to be in fashion right then you study the industry and you write down everything they do so i wrote down everything on the board it took to produce a concert then you cross off all the ones you can't do I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't write music, I don't know how to do the lighting. If there's nothing left, you need to move on. But there always is. And so when it was done, I, I noticed somebody has to put together the financing package for a concert, right? The, you know, Justin Timberlake or Beyonce don't go out and finance their own events. Somebody puts that together. On the back end, once you have financing and you can produce this concert, someone has to market and promote and advertise it. Somebody promotes the concert or the tour to sell the tickets. So those are both things I'm good at. I'm really good at marketing, and I know how to put financial packages together. So now I started asking people in the industry, if there was something I could help you with, a problem I could solve, what would it be? Well, every one of them said the same thing. Look, we're all artists. We're not business people. So we need people that put together the financing. We need people that promote and you know literally run the tour and produce the concert. So are there people that already do that? Of course, just like there's multiple travel websites. There's, it's unrealistic to think you need to be the only one. You just need to be really, really good at what you do. Um, <clears throat> so that's what I started doing. I started putting together uh, the financial packages for concerts and tours, and I started putting together the back end promotions and marketing. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll sort of cut to the punchline here. 
we wound up doing concerts with Elton John, tours with Britney Spears, events with NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys. I wound up, you know, on stage introducing, I remember a particular time I went out on stage to introduce Elton John for a concert he and I were doing. And I was like out of body. I went on stage and I heard myself say, are you people ready to rock? And it was like, I was listening to myself saying, holy crap, that was me. Because <laughs> it wasn't that many years ago, I was sitting in those 30,000 people wondering what it would take to be that person. Um, and then, you know, found myself on a tour bus traveling with uh, NSYNC or whatever it was. And it's because of that formula. We, these are the people I want to be around. This is the industry I want to be in. I studied the industry. I found a problem I could solve. I learned how to solve that problem and contribute. And then suddenly uh, I'm in the industry doing the stuff that I wanted to do. So incredible. And you make it sound so easy. I mean, to some extent, is it that easy or were there a lot of obstacles in each of these, uh, you know, pursuits of your dream? Nothing's ever easy. And there aren't just obstacles. There's always people who want you, who don't want you in because that's their industry. Every spot you take, you took somebody else's spot. So um, there's, it's a very multidimensional problem, including relationship management. Nothing's ever easy, but nothing worth having is ever easy, right? Uh, so it's really, uh, uh, one of the times I was on the road with the NSYNC guy standing in a stadium, I remember asking, uh, I think it was Justin Timberlake, asking them, you know, in your wildest dreams that you ever imagined you'd be standing right here right now, right? Because they were in a sold out football stadium at the time. I think it was Giant Stadium. And I remember Justin saying something to, the, to me, the effect of, well, did you ever think you'd be the guy that'd be standing here with us, right? <laughs> and the answer is kind of, yeah. I always dream big. If you dream really big and you only achieve half of it, you're way farther ahead than if you have a small dream and you achieve 100% of it. So I always just go big or go home. Um, and there's always a lot of obstacles, which just makes the victory that much sweeter. By the way, because it's difficult, that includes failure. We certainly had companies that were miserable failures. Um, not everything works, and sometimes you aim for the stars and you just miss. Uh, shaking off failure is just part of the process. Yeah, what was your biggest failure? Can you, can you share that? Um, yeah, probably early on in the, uh, in the uh, internet process, um, before there was a price line or anything else, we had this crazy idea that you don't need to go to the mall to buy clothing or whatever, you could just order it from your computer. So we launched an internet shopping company way too early. I got investors excited. I got retailers excited. I had products. I launched the site, built the company, and no one bought anything because we were way too soon and no one trusted the internet. So the company failed miserably. We had to shut the company down and tell the investors we failed. Yeah. Uh, just too soon. Uh, uh, right idea, wrong time. There's lots of ways you can fail. That was just one of them, but it was a miserable failure. Not fun. Yeah, it must have been hard to go back to uh, both the employees at all, kind of got on your on your bus and the investors and, and tell them that this just wasn't going to work. Do you remember Ab that day? Absolutely. That is not a fun process. Um, luckily for us, I always do a postmortem. Anything we fail, we do an autopsy on the dead body. Um, so in the postmortem, we discovered a business idea we had not seen. So we started another company out of the wreckage of the previous one. What it was, by the way, was we had built this middleware to connect traditional retailers to this new internet thing. And while nobody was buying products, lots of banks were calling us saying, can I use this to put my bank on the internet? And we said, we're not a banking company. So we said no to all of them. But there were so many calls that after we shut down the old company, I started calling a lot of these banks and saying, uh, you know, tell me what you're looking for. So our next company 
was, was a middleware, a tools company that would connect traditional banks to this brand new internet thing. And that company did really, really well. But we pulled that out of the ashes of the failed company. Wow. Wow. And so that's a great lesson for, I think, everyone listening to learn that, you know, while, while there are failures, a lot of times there's a, a lot of value in either the learning process or in, in what you've created and to listen to what the market, I mean, I think a big, you know, challenge for myself personally is, you know, I always have to remember to meet the world where it is so that then I have a chance of changing it versus where I want it to be. Because if, if you're not meeting the world where, you know, it is like, the world wasn't ready for internet clothes, right? Uh, you know, th then you don't have a chance of changing the world. It happens. Yeah. And then, so Jeff, you, you went and we'll kind of get back on track here. You were at Priceline. You decided to, to have a, a, you know, a music career. Uh, I believe you then got into, you, you've had many businesses, but I know at one point you got into the, to the film business. Is that correct? Um, absolutely. That was the same kind of thing. You know, everybody has their bucket list thing before you die, you want to climb Mount Everest or whatever. I always wanted to go through the creative process of making a film uh, just to see what it was like. And uh, the difference is before I always kind of thought of it earlier in my life as a write-off. Maybe I could make an independent film one day, whatever it costs me, I need to keep it low because 98, I'm making that number up. I don't know what the real number is. 98% of all independent films will never see the light of day. They're not going to be in a theater near you. I knew that. But then this formula we just talked about, I started saying, well, what if, what if I implied all my entrepreneurial skills and everything I know about building companies, targeting audiences, you know, refining a product for a specific audience and marketing it to them? What if I did all that, but just with an independent film and just treated it like any other product and the company like any other startup, maybe it would work. So that's what we did. And we launched a production company and the first uh, film we produced was a horror film, uh, but it wound up being distributed in like 46 or 47 countries. Remember, I told you marketing is what I know how to do. Uh, and it was very successful financially. It's not a great movie, <laughs> but it uh, it certainly was a business success. Yeah. And it, it, did you do any more? Or was that the, the one that you did? Um, we were involved in a couple more after that as well. Um, but it was, it was a very fun process for me. We're looking at uh, uh, producing a few more films in 2019 as well. Oh, excellent. And for our listeners, what were some of the titles of those movies so they can go out and check them out if they want to? Well, I'll tell you the first one. The first one was a scary movie called Cabin Fever, and it's still out there on Netflix and stuff today. Oh, but it. it's, a, it's a bloody horror flick. That's why I'm hesitant. Not everybody loves those. <laughs> well, that's the caveat. If you're into horror movies, go check out Cabin Fever for sure. Yeah, on Netflix. If you don't like uh, my uh, partner, and that was a guy named Eli Roth. Um, that was Eli's first movie and my first movie, and Eli has continued uh, to produce a lot of films. Um, he's got a movie out right now called The House with its Clo a Clock in Its Walls. So Eli, this launched Eli's career in filmmaking after we made that first movie successful. Incredible, incredible. And I know that you're really passionate about that topic, actually. We can take a little segue in really um, helping people launch careers and helping people realize their dreams. Like, How has that shown up in your, your career, and, and what, what are your thoughts around that? Well, that's really all that I do now. Um, after the last company I had was actually an internet company called ubid.com, um, which we built to, I think we we're like the fifth largest auction site in the world. But after ubid, I made a commitment to sort of giving back. So I've spent the last five years of my life uh, just mentoring entrepreneurs around the world and teaching people the skills of entrepreneurship, which are the skills of turning ideas into running businesses and profitable ones. And, uh, 
I've spent these years teaching people those skills so that they can take whatever their dream is and go make it a reality. That's what I spend all my time on now. That's, that's incredible. And I know in between that and UBIT, I think you had a company called Color Jar. What was that all about? No, Color Jar is a design company. That's not really a company we're growing. Color Jar was our team uh, of developers that we had collected uh, at UBIT and some of our other companies that continue to do. They're, they're a brand design team. This still works. I'm just not part of that anymore, but that was something we spun off more because we had an amazing team of designers and developers. Uh, they've won, won many awards since then, and they have continued uh, to, uh, to develop a great product. Yeah. And so, like, we, we just chronicled, you know, your career at a very high level. I'm sure there's a lot of details we missed, but, I mean, you jumped from uh, doing uh, kiosks to Priceline.com to UBID to a music career to film career to, you know, helping assemble a design team. Now, uh, going out and being passionate about helping entrepreneurs. I mean, you know, looking back, you know, someone might say that this is, like, flighty or that you're jumping around all over the place and, you know, what? So, why? then, you're, the alternative is I'll spend 25 years in a cubicle doing the same thing that's boring as hell, but at least I won't be called flighty. <laughs> students ask me that all the time. They say, my parents keep telling me, hey, make a decision. Are you going to be an accountant or an engineer? And so they get this feeling. I work with college students all the time. They get this feeling that the world is telling you the badge of honor is 33 years at AT&T or whatever. And it's true because that's what we grew up with. That used to be the badge of honor in business. And now, Mark, you've probably heard this team term excuse me, with the millennials, there's a new term called the gig economy. And what they've discovered is the path to fulfillment is to have a life composed of a series of gigs, not 33 years in the same place. Now, there's no right or wrong here. We're not judging. If you want to work 33 years for one company doing the same thing, you should do that. It's a DNA thing. But what's happened is we have a generation of people whose DNA is telling them, I just can't commit to my whole life at one place. And what they've been told in the past is, well, you have to. Because you're, you're un, mine wasn't flighty, it was unstable. You're unstable if you keep bouncing around and doing different things. And they say, but that's what I want to do. I want to absorb a lot of the world. I want to try different things, learn different things, go different places. So what I'm excited about in the new gig economy, and there's been several books literally written about the new gig economy, is it says exactly that. It says, you know, a life of five-year chunks, learning and doing different things, for cert, for some people, is absolutely a much more fulfilling life than doing the same thing for 30 years. Again, it's a DNA thing, but I'm really glad you brought that up because I was always told I was unstable and why do you keep jumping around? And now they actually have a term for it. These are people just living in the gig economy. You were like the proto-gigger. <laughs> okay, that's funny. <laughs> I wish uh, I'd known that. I wish <laughs> I had known that then. Was, you're the proto-millennial. You're the first, you, you were the yeah. first out of water. You're just a little ahead of your time. <laughs> I was just some unstable dude, but uh, you know, I, got, I got to have a breadth of experiences that were far more interesting to me. But again, everybody's got to follow their own path. All I'm saying is now this is considered a path when it didn't used to be. Exactly. And, you know, and I've heard you speak, and you're, you're a great, terrific speaker. I encourage anyone listening, if you have the opportunity to see Jeff, he speaks all over the world at all sorts of events. You know, make sure you go and make it a priority to see him speak. But, you know, and I've watched a lot of your talks researching for this conversation, and you always talking stories you know does that come naturally tell me about that why always use stories to to get your point across now that, thank you mark it does because that's how i learned i remember in my my one job early engineering days even when someone explained something to me i'd say okay for example they say, what do you mean for example i would say 
I would try to create a situation. All right, so there's this hypothetical engineer. He's trying to do this. Show me how that would work. I can't, I can't learn. I learn faster by example, which means somebody telling me an actual story. So I realized that I kind of morphed into talking that way because I, re- I noticed that that's the way that I learned. Um, so that's really how that came about. I've never had any speaker training, even though I've given speeches in probably seven different, 70 different countries around the world. I just started to notice that because I learned that way, I started speaking that way. And when I did, people started coming up to me and saying, thank you for taking a complex concept and making it really understandable to me. So then I started doing it on purpose because listeners told me, your story really clarified it for me. So that's something I morphed into, uh, but I did so because it's the way that I learned. Yeah. And, you know, you tell a story that I love um, about wonder and uh, you relate it to how a child reminded you about wonder and and how we really need to walk, you know, around as adults and as entrepreneurs with this eye for wonder. I mean, how does wonder appear in your own story and, and how does that inspire you as you, you keep going and, and, and solving the world's problems? Um, it's really, really important. Um, I, 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 again, what happened was I got blessed enough to successes in my career to get to hang around with, uh, people that were my heroes. Um, you know, I had some early heroes, for example, uh, I remember in the early days of Atari, it was the coolest company in the world. They invented video gaming, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak worked there. The guy that created it was Nolan Bushnell and he was one of my heroes and now he's a good friend. And so becoming friends with people like Nolan, or I've spent a lot of time with Steve Wozniak, when people that were my heroes, when I got to spend time around them, I asked this fundamental question, what are the world's most successful people doing that everybody else isn't. So I decided I need to really be a sponge around those people and figure out what habits they have that everyone else doesn't because what makes them successful in a way other people aren't. And that was the first one I noticed. They have this nonstop intellectual curiosity about everything around the, of the world around them. If you're just in healthcare, you're gonna spend all your time working on healthcare stuff. And if I asked you, hey, did you see that new thing they're doing in the banking industry? You would probably say to me, Jeff, we're in healthcare. We don't really care what banks do. And what I noticed about these people, uh, my heroes, was that they all had this natural curiosity to wonder about all kinds of things outside of just what's on their plate. They don't do it 24-7. You got to get your work done, but they schedule a little time to wonder about the rest of the world every day or every week. So I adopted that habit because I noticed that those people had a much broader worldview and had a much broader set of ideas than everyone else because they were taking them from all over the world, not just from one industry. Wow. I mean, so, so much gold right there, Jeff, you know, thank you for sharing that. And I think that kind of um, dovetails into your, your concept of info sponging, doesn't it? Absolutely. That is, that is what I evolved that from. I was trying to uh, emulate as a habit, not a one-off that practice that I saw those people doing. So I created my own little thing called info sponging. I do this every morning where every morning you can spend your whole day working on healthcare. But take 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes, that's it, or a week. I do it every day. And for 10 minutes, you can't be in the healthcare business and you can't work for your company. For 10 minutes, you go, I challenge myself to learn one new thing every day that I have no idea what I'm learning, why I'm learning one new thing out of your industry. And if you learn one new thing a day about what the rest of the world is doing, each new thing you learn is kind of like a puzzle piece. And as you collect more and more pieces of a puzzle and move them around on the table in front of you, all of a sudden patterns start to form and you start to say, wait a minute, I got an idea here. If you think about it, uh, the, the time that I uh, uh, talked to Travis, he had studied, he had studied um, the, uh, cre- excuse me, the sharing economy. 
He was reading about the sharing economy. He was reading about micropayments on apps. He was reading about, you know, mobile scheduling systems. He put all these puzzle pieces together with a, with the idea of a taxi to create Uber. You would never have created Uber if all you were looking at was the taxi industry. Because step one in launching your own taxi company is what? You need to go buy cars. And if he had been looking at the taxi industry, he never would have created Uber. What he was doing was looking at what the rest of the world was doing, i.e. the sharing economy, the micropayments, what apps were doing, GPS. And he said, I can combine all these things into something brand new, uh, which was a taxi company that no one in the industry probably ever would have thought of. It's crazy, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just an amazing way of of seeing and approaching the world. And I hope everyone listening really takes us to heart and starts to think, you know, how can they start the info sponging process every day of looking around of things outside their industry uh, for inspiration uh, because it is so powerful. So, you know, you mentioned you're a you're a, a good marketer, and I would agree. Uh, you know, one of the things I've heard you talk about is this idea of making your customer the hero of the story. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that and your thoughts around that and why that's so important? Um, yeah, we're uh, very big on uh, on uh, the customer intimacy model. Um, we uh, I started to notice that when I was talking to a lot of companies, people focus on their competition. I say, how's it going? And they look left and right at the competition who they're evil, equal with or beating, and they say, great. And so that implies that your competition knows everything and is right. And there was an industry, a product at the time that when we were talking to, looking at all the competitors, if you followed their path, you would have continued going left. But customers said, man, if somebody, just one person would go right, we'd all use that. So there was a time where following a customer made way more sense than following the competition. And so that requires a level of customer intimacy, of spending more and more time out of your office and with your customer and listening. By the way, in our company that failed, that's exactly what we did not do. We talked to all these internet people and tech people and everyone that said, you should set up this new thing called e-commerce. So we did. What we didn't do was go talk to housewives and say, would you use this thing? And they said, heck no. Here's 10 reasons why I won't. If we'd asked that in the first place, we would have been addressing those, not doing what everybody else was doing. We were one of many companies that died early because we were blinded by our own brilliance and listening to industry experts when, in fact, the customer was a housewife and she had no technical expertise at all. So that's the lesson is invest time to be out of your office and to really, really dig into customer intimacy and get to know them and listen to them. Don't listen to what your competitors are doing. Oh, great advice. Get out of the office and start talking to customers. I think we all have a tendency to to sit in the office and it's kind of scary sometimes and it takes a lot of work. And uh, the the irony there is that once we do get out, it's so enjoyable to talk to customers and hear what they have to say, but to, to make that step is, is hard for a lot of people. So I think that's a, a great point. And you've just given so much great insight and uh, pointers for people. So I hope everyone's really taking these to heart and, and listening and going to go ahead and apply these to their business. Jeff, like, what, what are you most excited for next? Well, the uh, kind of two things on the on the broader level, um, we've been focusing on underserved communities, um, from women's groups uh, to youth groups to you know uh, low income areas in the U.S. and in other cities to try to teach people how to help themselves. Again, the skills of entrepreneurship. No one's going to come save you. No one's going to make it better. So figure out a way to do it yourself. I literally just came from Watts, the famous uh, neighborhood in L.A. Um, where, you know, they had a history of the Watts riots and gang violence and everything else. And they're saying, look, we just want to reboot our neighborhood, but people need to have hope. They need to believe there's some way out. 
So I spent time there because teaching people the skill set of entrepreneurship is teaching people how to help themselves. And I'm very encouraged that when you show people that, let's say you have a criminal record even, and you're never going to get a job because everyone's always going to Google you and they'll never hire you. And you may be a good person that just made a bad decision. Everybody that's been in jail is not automatically a bad person. They might be a good person that was in horrible circumstances and made a bad decision, but they shouldn't be condemned for the rest of their life. So in, in that situation, you'll never get a job. So why don't we teach you how to create one? Go do something useful for people somewhere in your community that you'll get paid for and you don't have to beg for a job, just make one. So I'm particularly encouraged that more and more communities around the world are saying, okay, show that, explain that again. Show us how we can develop the skill set of people helping themselves. That's probably what excites me most in the world right now. That's what I'm spending a lot of time on. Oh, that, that's great. And is there anything, in, you know, what about your story still needs to be written? What else do you want to accomplish you know, outside, of, outside of the goals you just shared? All right, so this one's way, um, <laughs> way less uh, noble, uh, but we just launched not that long ago a, uh, a new company, a new fund to buy professional sports teams and with the plan of buying an NFL football team up front. So that's something that's more like a childhood thing, a childhood dream, something I really want to do, but I'm particularly excited about that. And again, it's not a noble goal. I just love sports and being more involved in it would be fantastic. Yeah, I think every sports fan, anyone that plays fantasy sports, uh, that is also a dream of theirs. But probably most people don't think and dream big enough. And so putting that out there and, you know, I applaud you to say, hey, this is what I'm doing. And there's probably some some vulnerability and risk to declare that, hey, I want to buy an NFL. That's not that's not for everybody. Right. And, uh, and, yeah. it's, not, and it's not easy. And, um, you know, I think that's great, too. I mean, all our dreams don't have to be noble. No, and they're not. Um, but, uh, you know, it's funny because one of the other sort of uh, driving forces for me is I always say this, improbable, yes, impossible, no. Most of the things I want to do are improbable, uh, but I never accept that they're just impossible. So, uh, you know, this particular dream was an improbable, yeah, is an impossible, no. Now it looks like uh, we're going to pull it off. That's oh, so inspiring. Jeff, is there anything you'd like to, to share that you haven't shared? Or can you just let us know um, the, the best way people can uh, learn more about Jeff Hoffman? Sure. And, and on, on that sense, I don't think so. One of the things people ask me all the time is, uh, you know, how can we help you? And the answer is the ripple effect, right? I don't want somebody to do something for me. What I want people to do is if anything we ever did was useful for, to you, make sure that you pass that on. Make sure that, you know, you reach back and grab the hand of someone behind you and pull them forward and share whatever wisdom that you've got. So the ripple effect is really, is really what we care about in terms of people say, can I do something to, in return? Um, uh, two ways. Uh, I'll give you my main email. is just jeff at jeffhoffman.com. And I also have the website, uh, jeffhoffman.com. Either of those, uh, you can find me there. Oh, fantastic. Jeff, thank you so much. I just, this is so jam packed with so many nuggets, so much great advice uh, coming from a successful entrepreneur like yourself. And I just really appreciate you coming on, sharing your story and, and all your entrepreneurial insights. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you very much for having me today. Uh, you got it. Wow. And that's Jeff Hoffman. What a story. Some things we didn't get to discuss with Jeff, and I'm sure it comes as to no surprise to you, but 
in addition to being a keynote speaker and being invited to over 50 countries to speak on the topics of innovation, entrepreneurship, and business leadership, Jeff is also the co-author of a book called Scale, a how-to guide for growing your business. Jeff also teaches innovation workshops to major corporations on a regular basis. And Jeff received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the National CEO Council for his contributions to the field of entrepreneurship. And he received the Champion of Entrepreneurship Award from J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank, and Rising Tide Capital, as well as receiving the George Brown Award for International Cooperation. Well, that's today's show. If you liked it, please consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And real friends always share the Baby Got Backstory podcast with those they love and care about. If you have any questions, comments, or show ideas, please leave a comment or send me a message directly to podcast at wildstory.com. Those emails all come directly to me and I answer every email personally. Maybe not right away, but I will get to it. So go ahead and send me a message. There's no automation here at Baby Got Backstory. Thanks again, and until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. Baby got backstory. You'll also find free story downloads and resources to help you integrate the power of story into your business.